Today's podcast is about generative art. Honestly, you'd be hard-pressed to record a podcast in This Week in Crypto Art uh, with works by Tyler Hobbs and Dmitry Cherniak getting million-dollar sales and valuation at auction, and not mention that generative art seems to be gaining a momentum we've, for quite a while, seen elsewhere only in fits and starts. That's certainly a cause for celebration. In the ideal crypto art, we celebrate all successes. But it also gives us an opportunity to ask some deeper questions about generative art. Like, why has it once again emerged at the economic forefront of crypto art? Is it something about generative art itself? Or is it more about this moment in crypto art or in the world? A moment that's eager for the kinds of abstract, expressive power that generative art is capable of, well, generating. To answer these questions, Colburn and I are talking to two of the central figures in generative art today, the brilliant experiential art duo Operator, Dijatai and Anya Catherine. Just about a week or so ago, Operator's own generative art project, Human Unreadable, sold out on Artblocks in minutes, a monumental success for two artists who've achieved that success the right way, uh, with organic support, with insights into what kinds of artistry are needed to push all of crypto art forward, and with an absolutely bang up concept. Uh, the work itself is generative choreography in three acts. Act one, the coding, act two, the minting, and act three, an ultimate choreographic performance. And we'll get into all of that later as well. Uh, but for now, I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation with Operator as much as we enjoyed having it. Uh, without further ado, the Mocha Live podcast. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Mocha Live podcast. My name is Max Cohen. Uh, I'm the, the writer for the Museum of Crypto Art. As I mentioned, this is the Mocha Live podcast. It is 2.06 p.m. EST, uh, where I am and where Colborn is. Uh, Colborn, founder of the Museum of Crypto Art, how are we doing? All good. Joining us as he does every week. And two special guests this week joining us from uh, a couple of different time zones, if I am correct. Uh, Deja Tai and Anya Catherine, who together are the incredible digital art duo, generative art duo, choreographer duo, uh, mm. operator. Um, thanks so much for being here, you two. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. We have a lot to get into today. Um, we're going to talk generative art in kind of a couple of different facets. The kind of reason that, I mean, obviously the reason I wanted to have you two on this week is because just last week, your drop Human Unreadable on Artblocks sold out. It was a really huge success, both like financially and also conceptually in a space that I think lately is in desperate need of uh, success for cool people who are doing things the right way. Um, so awesome. Hell yeah for you guys. But there's also a trend that I've noticed, which is when we go down the list of works in crypto art today that seem to be like very sought after, you know, we come again, come up against these works like Fidenza's where there was a recent $1 million sale and gazers and ringers and squiggles and now human unreadable, right? These generative artworks that have larger mint counts, um, anywhere from 10,000 to 400 for human unreadable. And they inspire a kind of collecting that we, I think, see elsewhere, really only with like PFP and other like DeFi projects, right? So it's really rare within the art world itself. The point being that it seems that at this moment in time, generative art seems to have, seems to be sticking out against a backdrop of kind of a languishing crypto art environment that most of the space, I think, point blank just seems to be stuck in. Um, so first of all, um, Anya, what do you think the reason for that 
might be? It's a big question, I know. Yeah, well, that's a big one to start. So I think kind of what you said about generative art being that there's hundreds of people that collect from the same collection kind of at the same time, normally, you know, at the same time, and there being this, and what you'll see is kind of communities forming around these projects where you have hundreds of people who within a short period of time got excited about an artwork and then all talked about it and compared them. I think maybe because of the number and because of the more busy times in crypto art that everyone kind of like mints them within the same hour and then this whole conversation starts around them, that it does maybe kick off projects like that and give them a sense of community and identity and belonging from the get-go that maybe someone who collects a one-of-one from an artist doesn't really have that suddenly hundreds of people that they have something in common with, you know, to speak about and compare and kind of bond over. I don't know. I, I don't really think about that question often, but I think it's a really important one. But just our initial feeling, I think, from not working in this medium, never making hundreds of pieces, we've never done that before. Um, and just feeling the difference from when we release a one of one or we do a like performance installation where people are being anonymized one at a time, which doesn't have that kind of volume even humanly possible, that I instantly felt the difference when there was hundreds of people in Discord comparing projects, talking about what they liked, getting each other excited about the work. So I have to think from my personal view of someone who didn't make that kind of work to now someone who sees what happens when hundreds of people get excited about one thing at the same time, I think it creates a kind of bonding and conversation that maybe can um, help people want to keep that alive longer than if it's an isolated artwork. Deja, what do you think? I would continue and extend upon what Anya just said, um, because this is the first generative artwork that we've created mm -hmm. uh, in, in this manner. And our, our work is generally participatory. There's an audience participant who's, you know, completing the work. And so in this, I felt like that participatory element was the moment of, of the minting. I, I guess... I didn't think too much ahead of time of like what that experience would be like. Um, but there was this type of experience that was happening, as you were saying, Anya, in, in Discord, where I just kind of saw it unfold before my eyes of like, oh, I get it. Like, I get why there is a bond between the, the, the collectors. And I get like, and we were part of that excitement ourselves because we were experiencing the work um, as it was unfolding which isn't abnormal for us um, because, it, because our work is experiential and that is a beautiful cat. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Um, Every podcast that cat ends up in Coburn's lap. <laughs> so I would just extend uh, what Anya was saying because I think um, it, it allows, you know, it becomes more participatory in that way. Of course, you know, there, there's, limits within who can participate, um, maybe based on like price point and quantity, and that should be noted as well. Sure. Colborne, in your history, how, uh, a couple of questions, but like how has generative art collection today changed from maybe, you know, 2018, 2019? Um, and then like, do you have a lot of generative art in your collection as well? <sighs> I have some, I have some real gems. I was always, you know, I was, 
I'll, I'll call it late or not understanding or it didn't speak to me maybe because it was too much kind of in the middle right maybe because it was speaking to more people i i understood the one of one narrative and i didn't and then you know to me it felt like open editions came before really like one of one of x and open editions really left a sour taste in my mouth right because what is this when it's like so reproducible now what i did what i did not account for was this idea of and i should have known like how important it is to like bootstrap community around a project where everybody is engaged they're involved and they have their own like desire to to be in like that group and have that connection with each other and the artist I always kind of, and and this is probably like, you know, backwards thinking, but like art as more of like the solo in, endeavor. I did not understand what distribution meant. I didn't understand kind of what like scale meant. And at the end of the day, blockchain is really like a fantastic distribution mechanism that allows for like value aligned incentives. Oh, I just wanted to return actually to something you said earlier, Max, when you kind of positioned it as, I don't know if you said it's between like 10K PFP projects and like art, but I think there is something to that logic because I think people wonder why, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why like 10K PFP projects um, and people often, especially people in the art scene are like, why would you buy that? like ugly thing you know so people people have that kind of feeling about a lot of that but I think what they're missing is that you know a lot of people are not buying it because of the picture they're buying it exactly because of like what we're talking about which is like this feeling of belonging that like happens instantly and so I think what's what's interesting about generative art and what we've gotten like a little bit of a taste of is what does it look like when you don't have people just rallying around like increasing the value of something but actually creating a community around being excited about an artwork rather than being excited around a club or the club not being just about making that thing more valuable but the club being around supporting an artist or supporting a vision Um, and so kind of getting out of the solo artist mindset which we've always also kind of been and this is the first time and like I feel pretty allergic to the word community as do many people um, but it does do something when you have mo- many people that are helping to elevate your your um, project and are excited. And we're trying to see how we can, you know, leverage that momentum and conversation and steer it towards figuring out what that what that power can do when it's actually about art or around an artist for real. A, I think that when I say that they're like between 10K PFP projects and one of ones, like I mean, like actually numerologically. Yeah. But, well, and may, maybe that was obvious. Um, but I also think it's interesting that we've seen in an, like in a moment where uh, I just read something yesterday about like a Moonbirds dropping 95%, right? And that product project kind of being a failure or con- conceived of as a failure by its community. The kind of similar analogs, right, to the, really sought after generative art projects like i mentioned before the squiggles the gazers the ringers the fidenzas those are maintaining mm-hmm. the cultural capital in a way that a lot of these pfp projects don't seem able to 
really outside of punks and, and bored apes, everything is kind of prone to, you know, hitting the shitter at any specific moment. And there's some pull that I think people are having on you to what you were saying. There's an identification with these various facets of artistry that I think are really palpable in how people are treating uh, the works themselves. Um, Disha, why do you think that generative, maybe like also abstract artworks are so kind of perfect a repository for people to kind of not only have this community, but also to like hold fast to it when a lot of other things seem to be kind of free falling? Well, I think the generative aspect allows for volume, right? Uh, and, and so that's the first thing that, that comes to mind. How I want to answer this question I, is, is like kind of going to what I observed in the interactions in Discord and on Twitter as, as Human Unreadable was going down the end of the, the release and even afterwards, where it allows for people to create, and this is back to the community, but like create connection around specific aspects of a work and the variations on that work. Um, and I'm even thinking about like the, the different curiosities that tend to like build and extend upon upon that. So like, for instance, I'm noticing um, a whole group of people who are bonding and creating, um, like learning together about choreography uh, in Discord. So these are people who, you know, are punks and apes and maybe used to collectibles or fidenzas or abstract works that maybe don't include the human body whatsoever, but suddenly they're interested in that. And it's not because maybe necessarily that all of a sudden they're like, yeah, you know what? I do like dance, but it's the medium that allowed it for them to be accessible because they were already open to generative art and this, like the, this, the medium itself. And so there was, I think like maybe a trust in the medium um, that allowed almost like a, a gateway into something a bit more experimental as well. I don't know if I'm like totally answering your question about the the, the notion of like why the abstract is holding up uh, so much, but um, Anya, I see you smiling. I don't know if you want to add to that. No, well, I think that this is obviously a guess, but I think if there's something that it's difficult for people to like really argue over, it's almost like, you know how Deja, Deja's mom in like her line of work of like designing homes, um, she we ask her about like certain choices that she makes. And sometimes she's like, yeah, but this needs to be for the 90%. Hmm. And so when she's staging a home, she's like, I would make this wall bright purple, but this is staged. And like, it needs to be pretty much anyone who comes in the house can see themselves living there. Like it can't be something that like pushes or has too strong of a, like a choice or too bold, like leopard, no, because you'll turn off a lot of the population, you know? And so it's like choices that I think are likable and I don't say this in a rude way it doesn't mean they're not good choices it just means I think that um a lot of the work and like abstract work even if you look at like artsy's recent reports like abstract painting is like what people spend the most money on and so I think there is this idea of if you're collecting art that you want something that like most people maybe will also like or enjoy with you um and I think why I we certainly, we are, we love the work, but I don't think we were thinking this is really for the 90%. Um, 
Mm -hmm. really made something that we knew people would be like, what body, what too harsh, too messy. Like we kind of knew we were making choices that like if this was a house being staged would not be for the 90%. And so I think that's why we were so moved and so happy when it got the response that it did and from people that we really respect because I think it showed that maybe there's even an underestimation of what these kinds of collectors are open to or how far they're willing to go into art and into experimentation um, and not just sticking to you know something that's difficult to have a fight about over dinner you know Um, and so I think that was that showed us a lot about the collectors in the community, I think we didn't really understand or expect was there, was like willing to go out on a limb. And the second thing I'll say, which is kind of unrelated, but equally made me really happy is like several collectors are like, my wife is a dancer and she knew who Merce Cunningham was. So like a lot of the collectors' wives and girlfriends and partners are like, oh my God, there's cool dance shit happening in your world that I usually like, I usually don't like what you collect or understand it, but they hear like dance or Yvonne Rayner or Merce Cunningham and suddenly they're like, whoa, I have like something to say about something you just collected. So I also love that there's even kind of a gender dynamic shifting where a lot of dancers who are usually not in these conversations or ears are perking up and they're like, there's something for me over in crypto art. Like that's really cool and exciting. And there's an expansion to, uh, and I think it, what Anya answered should have been the first part of the, uh, to, to your question, <laughs> um, to the first response, um, but extending the scope of what people are interested in, and it's yeah. like to like to, to to go into Discord and to hear um, to jump in and see collectors and supporters of the project talk about the choreo and they're like, okay, so the choreo is going to be revealed end of June, very interested on in how that's going to work. And they're just talking about choreography and like really wanting their choreography that created their piece. I'm like this is incredible. Or we're giving, you know, some context. Um, and we suggested watching one day Pina Ass, um, which is a, a documentary about Pina Bausch, uh, directed by Chantal Ackerman. And someone went in there and actually watched it and came back and reported back like what they thought. And so it's and and they're also so excited about the performance. So I think like it it you know we can widen outside mm-hmm. we can widen generative art outside of the abstract. I think there's there's more, there's more there, but it certainly is. I do think the medium of generative art was unexpectedly a, a, a nice gateway to onboard other folks to the interest of performing arts. So it's interesting, not just with human unreadable and, and it's being a gateway drug for choreography, but that this is, I think something that we're seeing elsewhere within crypto art, these other mediums, or the other art forms that are kind of finding, I don't know, an entryway into the crypto art world or an entryway from themselves, maybe like a portal into themselves within crypto art. I'm thinking specifically of like um, Anna Maria Capiero and Sasha Styles and the verse first doing that with poetry. Um, and I guess the question that comes off of it is like, how did you two kind of reach the understanding that generative art I mean, A, was required to capture this like choreographic moment, but also that it could, you know, interact with choreography. Because I think that that's, I don't know, kind of like next level, second tier thinking. Uh, they don't seem on the, their face to be compatible at all. 
Well, Anya and I's practice, um, you know, have the the human body at the core of the practice. Um, so my background is in human computer interaction. So I'm a technologist, but also an immersive artist. And Anya's a choreographer uh, and a performance artist. And so technology and the body are, you know, what's the, the material of each artwork that we create. And so for the, the collection, um, the privacy collection, which Human Unreadable is the most current lot within that, um, this is an ongoing series that's really site-specific to crypto culture. Uh, and each kind of lot is looking at, um, you know, a, a different site within crypto culture. And so for this one, you know, PFPs were one when we, when we anonymized 67 collectors portraits with the privacy portraits for one example, but uh, human unreadable, the site to create for was generative art, long form generative art. And so, uh, you know, the criteria for that collection is uh, being site specific, but then also this like tension between privacy and transparency uh, inher inherent in blockchain technology and the challenge and the focus of bringing the human body to um, to blockchain art, to crypto art, because we were seeing that there was a lack of, of the human body, or we wanted to challenge ourselves rather to extend the human body more to this medium and to this craft. And so it was a personal challenge for us, uh, just because it's one of the main materials of our practice. And so we said, well, how would we make generative art and the human body, you know, jive? And when we met with Eric Snowfro um, almost a year ago now during NFT uh, Zurich Art Day, Zurich, NFT Zurich, we, we discussed this with him and we discussed the notion of generative choreography. And this was something that was also really interesting to him. So a couple of months later, we, uh, you know, I think it was in August of uh, 2023, 2022, 2022, uh, time traveling here. Um, that's when, you know, that's when we started to like think about, well, how would we bring the body on chain? And so that was a nine month solution uh, so uh, to, to figure that out. So, I mean, that's how we arrived at knowing that's where we wanted to, to go. But then what happened from there was a process of like, it was a, a technical process, um, very much an engineering feat as well. Um, but that's how we arrived there. Um, and, and so it wasn't really thought of the, through the perspective of like, well, how do we, you know, get generative art folks to be into, choreography, but that just kind of ended up being being a result. But it was intentional to bring the human body into uh, crypto art in any way manageable. Coburn, I'd like to return to something that Anya said before, which is that human readable is generative artwork for the 10% as opposed to the 90%. Um, and I'm wondering <laughs> in, in your opinion, perhaps this is a loaded question, but like, what does generative artwork for the 90% look like in your Ooh. eyes. Uh, so to me, I'll take a little bit of the weight off of you, but I think about um, Unsupervised, the Rafiq and it all piece, um, which is super innocuous. It's beautiful, but we've talked about it before. Super innocuous. There's a reason that people who don't have any real relationship to art flock to the MoMA lobby and look at this piece because it is, I think, purposefully, I don't say that as like a slight, but I just say mm -hmm. that as it is for universal appeal. But Colbert, what do you think? Well, look, you know, I've, I grew up in this space on kind of like art for the timeline, right? That when, when you use Twitter as your curation engine for what you're producing, 
right? You end up cre ultimately creating art for the 90%, right? So at the end of the day, like, are you producing for yourself, which is something like Operator was very intentional about knowing what they were going to produce. In and then instead of like having the aesthetic continue to define what you're going to produce and having that feedback loop on the aesthetic, right? They started with a concept and they developed a project that ended up with a beautiful aesthetic, but it wasn't aesthetic forward, right? So when you begin to think of like what art is for the timeline, it's going to be like flashing imagery, bright colors, like swirly motion. You know, I think when you begin to like look at the other types of generative art projects that have done well, uh, you end up seeing that there is a, a different aesthetic, uh, but it's also so much more beyond that. And something like we haven't really touched on is just like the deep process that went into this and the amount of education that they did and the amount of like behind the scenes community support building that, that went into this as well to just make sure people were educated on the concept so that when the aesthetic was presented, there was a deeper understanding and relationship with it. And then of course, you know, there's, there's 400 of these. So, you know, that does kind of appeal to the 10% the of collectors as opposed to larger edition sets. That's an interesting thought about the uh, aesthetics coming before or after the process. Um, I think just in my practice being a writer, you know, there's no separating the two things because they inform each other so much from the outset. You need, I mean, the aesthetics being, I guess, like word choice itself, but these things are to seep back into the themes and processes that you're using to like put a novel or a short story together. And then they kind of can't be, I don't know, unlinked after a certain point because they're just in, you know, one is growing out of the other. I was um, reading about uh, Google, the uh, Russian writer and his use of um, a dialectic technique called scat, which is uh, writing from the perspective of a narrator that isn't knowledgeable, but thinks they're very knowledgeable. It was this like very like Russian street presence. Whoa. And so that, you know, if you're using that voice, that's going to affect the kind of details in the story you're telling and the attitude towards the character and mm -hmm. your attitude towards a character that's in, you know, some kind of distress can end up being one of vicious irony or one of great compassion, depending, I think on, you know, the tenderness of the language that you're using. So I don't know, just a little writerly insight from that side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I've, I've been researching generative art for, for some time, never in, in depth, but I have the conversations um, frequently about it. And something that I think is so interesting is that generative, the, the public, whether it's the crypto art public or the wider public seems to have this understanding that generative art is a product of the now when it's very clearly been a lineage that's been building for quite some time. Um, you know, Vera Molnar was uh, using algorithmic processes as early as 1968, um, which is not a fact that I'm coming up with off the top of my head, but uh, nevertheless remains true. So something nevertheless has changed in our attitude towards generative art, either the way we're accepting it or the way we're interacting with it. And it's gotten a, I, I think very clearly, like an exponential amount of success and acceptance which to me honestly feels a little bit unsustainable. Uh, and my question, um, Deja or Ani, whoever, whichever of you would like to, to take it is like, should it even be sustainable uh, or should generative art remain niche? I would love to just see it continue to mature. And like, I like the fact that there's a lot of people that through collecting generative art 
suddenly are interested in this museum show at LACMA that like three years ago, they would have never gone to LACMA, but suddenly because they collected this piece and then they learned about early generative art because it's connected to this artwork that they owned that maybe they weren't even like trying to really get into art, but now they're at LACMA looking at, you know, Potter drawings from the seventies. I think that's really cool. Um, and I, I think what I would like to see and what I think, I don't know, would be a desirable outcome is that it's not about hype, but it's more about deeper contextualization, looking at what's being done and having that historical knowledge, figuring out how it can evolve to be part of other practices and like other mediums and it being a way for, for this audience to have a deeper appreciation for art in general or like in the way that now we have you know generative art collectors that are curious about performance like that I think is a victory and it's a really cool way for generative art to keep evolving so it's not like it needs to stay niche I just think it would be really cool is to harness the interest but have it grow in a more um, mature direction instead of trying to keep up just like hype 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 over whatever but have it become maybe like slower and deeper and more interested in where it can go conceptually, theoretically, artistically. Dijon, what do you think? I have no allegiance to any one medium. So um, my, my care is not necessarily, and I don't mean this rudely, for generative art. I, I think uh, if it makes sense for the concept of the work um, or if it makes sense to an individual or a collective who that's the the core of their practice, um, then that's, you know, th that's something that um, needs tending to, right? Because I care about art. Um, I care about art more than generative art. And so what I mean by that is that I rather it not be generative art if it has to, if, if in order for it to to still remain art, right? So that means like if I'm just leaning into generative art because of the market mechanisms and because of the hype, then now all of a sudden I've I've lost the art part. So if it can serve both, then wonderful. And there's been, I mean, I started studying processing and emergent systems and 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 coding you know, generative programs when I, like in 2005, when I was a freshman in, in university and um, got the like K-series Ben Fry processing book. And, and so like, it's been near and dear for, near and dear for me uh, for like quite a long time. Um, but at the same time, the allegiance isn't there. And, and it's just sort of has kind of, because of the hype around generative art, which some of it is, beautiful and breathtaking and conceptually strong but then of course there's others that feel like maybe they're just there for the hype and I, I think you can very clearly you know uh, understand which is which um and so I agree with Anya in in that the the maturity like now now is the time for the maturity to kind of like have I think it's helpful when the hype goes away um mm -hmm. because then the art just remains and the artists who are generative artists who, and, and define themselves as a generative artist. Now they have the room back to, you know, focus on what is the artwork or if someone comes in to leverage that medium, because it makes sense for a concept of the work, they can focus on the work and not, and not the hype. I, I want to linger on something you said 
um, which I also want to push back on slightly, which is you, you mentioned, like, I think most of us can tell the difference between, you know, the work that has thought and intention and the work that is like mass produced, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. You know, Colborn and I spoke briefly on this last week, and, and I had made the point that generative art is so mysterious to me, right? I have no coding ability. So the idea of taking this output or this code and finding an output out, it seems kind of magical in a way that I think a lot of art to a lot of people may not in this day and age because these skills are so you know reproducible uh, in a lot of arenas. And Colburn pushed back on that. And you said something along the lines of, you know, anybody can find a lot of these codes uh, or a lot of this code online. You can copy and paste it into the right place and make some kind of beautiful output. At least Colburn, that's what I, my recollection of our discussion. Yeah, there's like obviously open source processing code that allows me to go just like copy, paste and generate just by changing the parameters, right? I don't necessarily need to code. And I'm sure with like some sort of help from AI, I could even do that in a way that could be indistinguishable from the form without knowing really anything about coding. But my, my point being that I personally, am not sure that if you expose me to, you know, 10 generative artworks at random and said that half of these were created by a really thoughtful process and half of them were just abstract outputs that were, I don't know, taken from online and run through an AI generator and you know, pushed out through whatever process. I'm not sure I could tell the difference without knowing a lot about the artistry, uh, without knowing a lot about the context. Yeah. Well, my first, my first thought there is, um, like I think of, you know, jazz musicians who will play a solo with like one note, like a two minute solo with one note. And it, it, and it's incredible. And maybe it doesn't take a lot of technical skill, but it takes a lot of soul. And so even if I'm reusing code that exists, um, but I'm doing it in a way that makes something new and I have a conceptual grounding and conceptual strength. It doesn't need to be, you know, you don't need to do what we did with human unreadable, which is like make an entire method of, you know, generative dance and spend nine months with engineers and dancers all around the world. Like you could do that, but like also there's other ways to make soulful, soulful, real art that's feel-based. And I think it's okay that, people are using, you know, open source code, but so long as they're doing something with it, um, you know, we use open source code, like every, and then we're providing our code, you know, to, to the world as well. Like that's, that's how it works. But I think at the same time, um, it's, it's what you do with it with like the limited resources that you have. And I also think, I mean, I, I say this more, at least from operators output, like, I don't really care if people know how we made it. I think it's it's interesting if for people who want to go there with us and and go on that journey, then they have a lot like they, there's a lot of depth there and and they can come on that journey. But I also feel that you know the artwork should be able to be experienced without any of that context as well. So I don't think there needs to be this expertise max like what you're saying where it's like you need to know you know, okay, this was difficult to make or, or, or whatnot, but like, does it make you feel something and does it feel genuine? 
Yeah, I, I mean, but I think that's a problem with abstract art in general, right? And I think the example of jazz is it kind of in a similar like musical arena. And I'm, I think of poetry as well, mm-hmm. where it's really hard to gauge, you know, I, I think about like the nonsense poets, right? Like um, Ezra Pound or E.E. E. Cummings, like it's really hard to know if a nonsense poet or nonsense poem is the product of like, I, I don't know, something more than just randomized outputs. I remember like in high school, we would have these um, poetry uh, seminars, right over the period of weeks and it was really easy to put together a poem that sounded like you know the greats of the 1920s because you could just kind of put words together put a couple of line breaks in there um use some onomatopoeia and just kind of call it a day so i think it's interesting right that like that extends i think to generative art in a lot of respects um and Mm -hmm. and so i agree with you that a you want to feel something and you want to have um you know this kind of initial attraction to the piece but I think the context becomes so important when dealing with abstract work, because I think that uh, personally, that's my way of becoming like in awe of artists or an artwork the way I have with you two and with human readable versus just seeing any given generative output and, you know, understanding that it's abstract and that I'm going to impress whatever I'm going to put upon it. But, uh, you know, having, I think a similar reaction to it that, a lot of people have when they go to museums and see abstract artwork, which is like, what's the point of this? I don't get it. Why is this art? Um, Colburn, I'm curious why, if, if maybe you think that there's a reason jumping off of that um, thought, if maybe that's the reason why abstract artwork and generative artwork specifically have found this, I don't know, momentary stranglehold on crypto art over like representational artwork. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the things, <laughs> the things that are the most polarizing are generally the things that do well in this space, right? So when somebody shows up to that museum, and this is probably true in life, and they say, I don't understand this, well, that is like either, you know, an invitation for them to go deeper, right, and try and understand it or an invitation to kind of just walk away. Whereas maybe if you see something that is figurative, you're like, oh, I understand this. Here is like somebody sitting and whatever, drinking a cup of coffee, right? And that is understandable and that is relatable and that doesn't like capture and engage and pull so much deeper. So like when you bring it like way down the line to... PFPs, like I think the reason Board Ape Yacht Club was so successful is because there were equally as ardent haters as there was like ferocious supporters. Um, mm-hmm. And you can't like understand, there is no commonality of like, I do not see myself in this or like, I really see myself in this and understand. We live in a time of extreme emotions, right? And like value is being pushed and accrued to really extreme places right so when there is no like center it's very very difficult to kind of understand like where you are and where you fit um and that's why we see i think so many people like trying to find more and more community around anything that could be like a a, maybe a metaphorical center proverbial center i don't Mm -hmm. know i mean what you just said is also like the same logic of U.S. politics right now, and you also can't separate that from engagement. And maybe the things that are polarizing 
become successful because they have the most people talking about it. And in the end, it's just about, you know, whether you love it or you hate it, you're still making that thing more popular. You know, I think it's the same logic that applies here. And I, I feel like going back to the subject of like generative art and not questions of like good and bad, because I don't actually think like good and bad is an interesting way to categorize or even like judge art but I, I know we definitely with human and readable we're just thinking like okay so this audience obviously responds to this kind of art like it's not saying a value judgment on that kind of art but we knew that like for example if we made something more colorful because a lot of people were like that crowd doesn't like black and white <laughs> you know like we were told things that we could do that like would maybe make this safer or more comfortable or not too outside the comfort zone of like what that audience responds to has demonstrated that they have a taste for that they you know want to hang on their wall so there were things that we could have done that i think would have put us more in line with the the, the, the demonstrated taste and preference uh, of like what that audience like what kind of work they resonate with um, and so i think rather than it being about quality it was more just about let's let's see what else maybe resonates with them that might even surprise them themselves. And I think that's what was really fun is that we ignored pretty much all the advice of like what would do well commercially, like in this kind of way, because it goes like in a completely other direction. Um, but I think that's exciting. And it's also what art should do is, you know, you see something and you're like, why does that make me feel that way? You know, why, why does that resonate with me? Why do I feel uncomfortable? Why do I feel vulnerable looking at this? And we more wanted this work to be um, something that, yeah, people realize something about themselves through, or they felt comfortable looking at something that maybe a year and a half ago would have been too extreme for them, but they've like, you know, established a taste and suddenly this was okay and approachable to like be comparing mine has feet. Oh, mine has nipples. And you're not talking about like in a sexual way. You're just like, I'm looking at this artwork I own of the wo a woman's body. Like there's so much to unpack here that I think is really interesting. So I, I want to, um, you know, wrap up in a couple of moments, but I, I'd like to, um, to grab everyone's opinion on, on a question that I think is, is a really good place to leave off and jumping off of human unreadable, which is generative choreography, but it obviously requires, you know, a professional's intense knowledge of both mediums, right? Um, it's your two specific skill sets and specific, you know, histories that allow to work like this to jump, you know, into existence, right? And I know I mentioned the verse verse folks earlier, but there's a, a confluence of intense understanding of, you know, machine processes and also of poetic practices, which are going to allow those outputs to kind of exist. Um, and I'm interested, I think a lot about what arenas for generative art haven't really been dabbled into, but are kind of, I don't know, sit at a logical conclusion. Does that make sense? Like what are the furthest limits of generative art in this or that arena? Ones that have been you know, practiced or explored so far or ones that haven't uh, that maybe you've seen or have thought about or pontificated on? I can tell you what I'm interested in seeing, uh, which is generative art that isn't that that is outside the rectangle that is outside of the screen um and i think we've have seen 
that in the past with chance operations and computational choreography and performance as you've seen maybe in EAT in the 60s as well, Black Mountain College. And we certainly tried to do that with Human Unreadable where uh, you know, by the third act, you are completely out of the screen, but still experiencing generative art. Mm. Um, so for me, I am very interested in artists doing explorations in generative art that take us outside of the multimedia box. Yeah, I would say it's kind of similar, but something that stands alone as an artwork that then someone can appreciate and like, and then find out that it's generative without necessarily knowing that at the beginning. Like, I think that's exciting for people. Like I, we always think about this with the performance of maybe someone who just, you know, went to a museum on a Saturday and sees a performance and just thinks it's another performance and doesn't realize they're watching generative art. Hmm. So that I think is really exciting. So I think more ways where you see something and then when you're told it's generative art, you're surprised because it, when you, you know, if you imagine, if you close your eyes and you think of generative art and like what you picture, it just falls so far away from that kind of mental picture that comes up. So I'm excited to see, yeah, how people can take the medium and use it in ways that are like unrecognizable, surprising. I think that's, there's so much to explore. Coborn, take us home. All right, because it's the end of the podcast, I'm going to tell you my terrible ungenerative art idea that I had. Uh, and have you seen the movie Arrival, right, with the aliens that are kind of squids and they're communicating in like this blotty ink language and this linguist has to go and like figure that out? If you haven't, that's kind of the initial concept. And I use like this charcoal toothpaste and I always end up like spitting into this white sink. Right. So I wanted to capture like a hundred of those and then say I used like AI to interpret some sort of language out of this, but really then just like write pretty garbage poems. So none of it would be generative other than like I'm generating it and it's all kind of just uh, like kind of a, a waste or just like nothingness, but then to just like say it's generative and to say it's AI. Uh, and kind of sell it as that 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 is my idea of like ungenerative art would you have a big data set too yeah I, every time i brush my teeth like twice a day maybe for a year yeah 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 you can see, you can see how your spitting habits changed by the month <laughs> i just need like a big white porcelain sink oh my god i love that please don't encourage me yeah no, we should encourage you. <laughs> I want the toothpaste project. We always uh, end up talking about basketball at the end of these podcasts, which I see as like a um, a treat or a punishment for people who've made it this far. And uh, <laughs> this week it'll be Coborn's toothpaste generative art idea. Love it. Yeah, next week we'll have just we'll just move on from here to bad art project ideas. Yeah, well, the basketball season's about to be over, so we'll have to find something to put at the end of these podcasts. Um, all right, this seems like a great place to wrap up. Uh, Anya, Deja, thank you so much for being here with Colborn and I. Uh, this was a lovely conversation. Uh, this has been another edition of the Mocha Live podcast, and we will be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. I guess we won't be the same time. It'll be a different time, but all right. We'll be thank back you. next week. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone, for being here. We'll see you next week. Thank, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.